Listen now to the word of the Lord. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither thou shalt be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of life, uh, from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murders, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Well, uh, welcome. Um, For those of you who are new to our service, we are now on the final question of the New City Catechism, which we have been uh, working through for a year now. And so, uh, just again as a reminder, for those of you who will be attending the retreat, um, there will be a game based on the New City Catechism. So for those of you who are competitive, I encourage you to review them this week so you can win. Um, So let's uh, review, not the whole thing, um, but beginning with question 36 once again uh, for our final uh, review together. Um, This is now the third section. What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? How does the Holy Spirit help us? What is prayer? What is the Lord's Prayer? How is the word of God to be read and heard? With diligence, preparation, and What are the sacraments or ordinances? What is baptism? What is the Lord's Supper? What is the church? The community of elected 
Where is Christ now? What does Christ's resurrection mean for us? And today, the final question, number 52, what hope does everlasting life hold for us? And the full answer is that it reminds us that this present fallen world is not all that all there is. Soon we will live with and enjoy God forever in the new city, in the new heaven, and the new earth, where we will be fully and forever freed from all sin and will inhabit renewed resurrection bodies in a renewed, restored creation. Um, But the answer we're going to memorize together is that we will live with and enjoy God forever. Let's pray together. Lord, we... uh, are thankful for the word today and for this year where we got to uh, think about you um, through this uh, catechism. And now as we um, come to the end of this study, as we come to the uh, end of this uh, catechism, God, would you help us to not only understand uh, the truths about you, But God, help us to know who you are and to have this hope, this unfading hope that we may live our lives here and now accordingly. Now in the hearing of your word, God, would you open our hearts, give us the strength to listen and to obey your word in faithfulness and in joy. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, as I said, we, we began this series, you may remember, back in September of last year uh, with the first question, which is, what is our only hope in life and death? And the answer is? Oh, that's, not, that's pretty good. Um, that we are not our own, but belong to God. And the last question, number 52, which we had today is, what hope does everlasting life hold for us and the answer that we will live with and enjoy God forever so if you look at these two questions and answers you see that they both highlight this idea of hope what is our only hope and what hope does everlasting life hold for us and the answer highlights this idea of belonging to God that we are not our own but belong to God and that we will live with and enjoy God Forever, So this combination of hope and belonging or being with God, um, that's our hope. That's our only hope. And the story of the Bible, I think that the story of God is really just, just this. Um, as David said, you know, this is our uh, 15-year anniversary as, a, um, as an official or charter church. And um, a couple of weeks ago, um, I asked some of our leadership if, they, if anyone remember the first series of sermons I preached uh, 15 years ago. And someone actually remembered. I was so happy someone, someone remembered. So 15 years from now, uh, maybe a, a few of you will remember that we did the New City uh, Catechism. And um, I was reminded, you know, the first uh, sermon series I did was also a year-long sermon series. And uh, it was entitled The Thread of Redemption the towel of service, and the tapestry of glory. 
And so I, I try to trace through the whole Bible this, this thread of redemption that runs through and that we are called to, uh, to take that thread and, and to be knit to one another, to form this towel to, to serve one another in community, and that, that all of our work together then would form this beautiful tapestry that will bring God glory. And that, that's kind of, I try to trace that, those themes uh, throughout uh, scriptures. And, you know, as a young pastor, as a newly ordained minister, uh, as we began the church, you know, I wanted to kind of lay out this sort of grand vision for the church. And um, I shared with the congregation then, and I'll share with you again, that I, I feel like in my life now, and this has been uh, officially doing this for 15 years, I feel like I've only had really one good theological idea that I can sort of say is my, my thing or my... Uh, that's unique or somehow like uh, special to me. Uh, really, one theological idea, and and I I, I had uh, uh, a mentor who told me that you know most people really only have one good theological idea. Like really smart people, you know, really gifted people, you know, people like Bart and C.S. Lewis. Like those guys have like two or three really good ideas, but you you're gonna have one maybe. Right, so I said okay, and so this this was my idea, and, I, and at the time I thought, oh, this is great. This is like, you know, no one has ever thought of this before. Like this is my idea, and of course, you know, as you read more, as you study more, you realize, of course, everyone said this, you know, a thousand different ways, and much better too, right? So, um, but the idea, and again, this is not unique. Uh, although at the time I did think it was unique. Um, the one idea that I discovered for myself that I think is a good idea, um, or maybe I should say it was, that was revealed to me, and what has really been the organizing principle, the organizing sort of theological idea around which I've tried to um, do ministry and the way we've tried to uh, organize this church, um, is this idea that is here now in this last catechism uh, question. And, and that is this idea of being with to be with God and to be with one another. Uh, the, the root word for me, the, the great discovery for me was the Greek word parakaleo, which is uh, a word that means, um, what the word gets usually translated as encouragement or comfort in the Bible in English. But the, the Greek root uh, means literally to be called alongside, to be called alongside. And as you know, at the end of every service, I always charge you in the name of the Holy One to encourage one another. And, and the way I've tried to explain what that means is that you and I, we are called to be alongside or next to one another. It's, it's a reminder that we are to walk with one another as we all follow Christ. You, you don't have to lead. Jesus will do that, but we are called to be with, alongside one another. And we do this because this is not only what God does with us, but it's God's very nature to be with us. And we see this now uh, once again. I know that the language is always a bit challenging and confusing when we speak of God as both one and three, but as we read all of the scriptures, we see that in the beginning, in creation, it is the triune God who creates. God created the heavens and the earth, we are told, but also we are told that the Spirit of God hovered over the waters in creation. And then in the Gospel of John, we are told that that all things were created by the Word, and without 
the word, nothing was made that was made. And God speaks, you know, let us make human beings in our image. And then after the creation of Adam, God says it is not good for Adam to be alone and creates a partner, one who can be, again, alongside of him, to be with him. Before the fall, we are told that God walked alongside with humanity in the garden. I mean, can you imagine that? So from the very beginning, you know, God is with his people. God designed us to be with one another. And, and this, this idea of being alongside is, is echoed throughout all of scriptures. For example, in Leviticus 26, God says to Israel, I will make my dwelling among you. And my soul shall not abhor you. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. So this desire to be with God's people. The Apostle Paul picks up this theme in 2 Corinthians 6 when he says, We are the temple of the living God as God said. I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God. So so we see again now... um, In the wilderness, in the tabernacle, God was present. God made his dwelling in the tabernacle. And then when the temple was built, that was where God dwelt with his people. And then, of course, in Jesus Christ, God is now fully in a a whole different level of being with his people. The word was with God and that that word is God. And so in the incarnation, God is with us in some special way. In fact, John says in verse, uh, chapter 114, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwelt among us. God literally pitched his tent among us, or God moved into the neighborhood, as Peterson translates it. Th- this is what God is and what God does. In the Gospel of Matthew, the angel tells Joseph that at the birth of Jesus, there will be a fulfillment of what was promised in Isaiah 8. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, in Hebrew, literally, God with us. The very name of Jesus is going to be God with us, because that's what it is, right? As John says, In the incarnation, the word took on flesh and pitched his tent or moved in and dwelt among us. And as Jesus was preparing to return to the Father, he promised his disciples that just as he was with them as a helper, one alongside, so he will send another helper, the paraclete, same word for for encouraged, the one called alongside. The paraclete, the one called alongside, I will send you another helper. Comforter, helper, encourager, to be with you forever. And so, so we see this, right? That God's very nature is to be with us. And we see this again throughout, from the very beginning of the Bible to the very end, is that God is with us. Um, you know, the book of Revelation, as you heard, um, it's a very challenging book. The last book in the Bible, it's... Um, it's very difficult to interpret. It's very difficult to decipher uh, some of the language and, and the, uh, the imagery. And I can tell you that there's a lot in there that I have a hard time um, explaining or preaching with any level of confidence. Um, 
the details are just, every detail is, is debatable, um, you know. No one seems to really agree on a lot of the details, but the conclusion, the conclusion is not debatable. The conclusion is inescapable, and that is that God is sovereign. That's the message. From the beginning to the end, God is a sovereign Lord. Just as God created the heavens and the earth in the beginning in Genesis, so we now can have the same confidence that God recreates the new heavens and the new earth in the end. That's the vision of, of the, the reality. Because, you know, what you see, this is, this is not all there is. That there is a deeper reality that is going on in which God is the Lord. Um, I was thinking um, a few years ago, um, for about six weeks, at least that's my recollection, for about six weeks, it seemed like every single person in the United States, every single person I met uh, was playing Pokemon Go. Do you remember that? Do you remember when, like, it was just, I mean, that's all people were doing. I mean, I couldn't, like, I was standing in lines, you know, at the grocery store or at a restaurant, and everyone, that's the only game everyone was playing. Like, that, that was, it just, it was crazy. And remember, um, every building was like a, Pokemon gym or a Pokestop or like whatever. Uh, do you remember this? Yes? Right? I know some of you played. It's okay. Um, you know, my kids loved it because it, like, it was like their childhood dreams come true, you know? Uh, and um, people were just walking around looking at their phone and they were looking at an alternative reality. Well, what they called augmented reality, right? That the library there, that's not a library. That's really a Pokemon gym. That's what, that's what it told you. And that's how people lived. And I remember, I mean, I've had conversations with pastors during that time where they were trying to get their churches designated. I guess there was a way to like pay and get your church designated as a Pokestop or a Pokemon gym or something so that people would want to come visit because you can catch certain Pokemon there or get certain like extra Pokeballs or something like that where it would become these like hot spots for people to visit. I mean, it really was a crazy time. But, you know, the, that's what the game did. It, it offered this alternative reality, what they called augmented reality. It's, you know, the buildings that you see, that's, that's not real. What's real are, is this Pokemon uh, reality that was going on. Now, that, that's a terrible example in a way, but that's kind of what's going on in Revelation. That there is this alternative reality that we, we can't really see, or, but that's what's really happening here. And that reality is that God is the Lord, right? Because it's the people who are reading Revelation initially to the seven churches that the letter is sent out to, like, they're a small, tiny, tiny, tiny band of Christians. They're being persecuted. They're suffering. They have no power, And they get this incredible vision. God is in control. Endure. Hang in there. Because it's a different reality. Because it was hard to imagine. But the promise is that God is in control and that God will triumph and that the Roman Empire will fall and that God's kingdom of peace and justice and love, that that is a kingdom that will ultimately prevail. It's a, it's a vision of a reality. It's, it's, 
Uh, it's a reimagined alternative narrative to what Rome and the empire were offering. Now, we're skipping the first 20 chapters of Revelation, which describes you know, the, the end, you know, the, the final battles, the final judgments, uh, the end of history as we know and all of that. But here's, here's the thing that I want us to kind of really uh, remember from all of this. Because um, this is, again, for me, this is what it's all about. And that's verse 3. You hear in the vision, in the final vision that is given, we are told that God will be with us. Verse 3. Three times it says, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with, is with man or with his people, with people. God's dwelling place is with his people. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Three times we're told God will be with his people. That's it. This is the fulfillment of all the prophecies, of all the promises. Uh, Ezekiel 48, 35, for example. And the name of the city, the name of the city from that time on shall be the Lord is there. That's the Holy City. That's the New Jerusalem. God is going to be there, dwelling with his people. That is our end. Or rather, that, that's our beginning. God is not merely in the beginning and in the end. God is the beginning and the end. And here you see God speaks only for the second time in the book of Revelation directly where God says, Behold, I am making all things new. Write this down. These words are trustworthy and true. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. God says, I am the beginning and the end. You know, last week um, I said that eternity is not really about the duration of time, the length of time, or the quantity of time, but that really in the scriptures, eternal life or salvation uh, really speaks to the, the quality of time. That is to know God and to know Jesus Christ. And again, we see this at the end, that that's the same idea, the same understanding of what eternal life is. Our hope of eternal life is not just an ongoing you know, time as we understand time, but that God is with us. That God is with us. Um, this might not be of interest to, to many of you, but some people have wondered, like, what does eternity look like without time? Like, how can you have eternity without, uh, without time? Or at least that's one of the things that, you know, some people are, are wondering about. Because we talk about, or I've been talking about, uh, it's to be with God, but without this element of time uh, as we understand it. Uh, I've shared with some of you already that I think for, uh, the greatest challenge to Christianity today uh, are not philosophical ones, uh, raised, for example, by the so-called new atheists, because I think the kinds of philosophical challenges to the Christian faith, um, it, it's for me at least, as I understand it, it most of it is just old arguments kind of repackaged and popularized um, by the press. Um, they've been asked 
hundreds of years ago. They've been answered hundreds of years ago, uh, competently, I think. And so I, I don't find the kind of philosophical challenges that threatening uh, to my faith. However, for me, um, the, the biggest challenge for my faith for me uh, in recent years has really come f- from theoretical physics. Because I think theoretical physics offers a, uh, hard to understand, but they, they offer a compelling and competitive understanding of ultimate reality. They make an argument for ultimate reality that I think um, many people find uh, very convincing. And so for me, that's the area that I'm trying to kind of uh, understand and to try to answer in, in, in my own way. And it's hard because, again, it's, uh, I don't have enough background in, in physics, let alone theoretical physics. Um, but one of the most interesting ideas uh, that I've been um, thinking through and reading about uh, this past year, and again, I, I don't want to claim too much for myself here. I'm talking about this now at the most basic, basic level, okay? So those of you who have background in physics, you may laugh at me later, but uh, so uh, humor me. Um, so one of the things that I've been trying to understand um, is uh, quantum uh, uh, loop theory in, in quantum um, gravity. So as I understand it, loop quantum gravity says that time is not a fundamental physical property of the universe. Right? So we, we already know that time is not absolute. Like, for example, if you put a clock on an airplane and you put a clock at the um, bottom of a valley, that those clocks will move at slightly different rates because you know, gravity and space, right, it affects the rate at which time uh, moves. So according to a hypothesis called thermal time hypothesis, time is an illusion because we lack complete knowledge of thermal events. Okay, let me say that again. The time, right, the way we perceive time moving forward is an illusion because we lack complete knowledge of thermal events. Um, Carlo Rovelli, one of the developers of this uh, loop theory, uh, he explains it this way in his book, The Order of Time. He says that um, we perceive time insofar as we can see increases in entropy, right? So we, the argument is made that in the very beginning of the universe, uh, there was very low entropy. And then over time, that entropy is increasing. Like we see this, like Dave says, like you lose hair, that's entropy, right? You, things fall apart. That's entropy. And so over time, that's what happens. And that's how we live in time. That's how we perceive time. But he argues we only think that because that form of order is is this tiny little sliver. That's all we can perceive. And his argument is that if you could perceive all the different ways in which the universe is organized, then we wouldn't have this experience of moving time. So for example... Um, you know, when you, uh, a deck of cards, when you first open a, a deck of cards, it's at a very low entropy. It's ordered, right? They're, you know, ace through king, and the four suits are separated. So it's very ordered. When you, when you first open a deck of cards, you know, you go ace, then two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. They're all in hearts, and then they're all in diamonds. They're all, right? It's very ordered. But what happens when you play cards for, right, you shuffle them, you um, mix them up, 
and, and you look at the same deck, what happens? They're in a higher entropy. They're, they're more disordered, right? And that, that's an example of, of uh, increasing entropy, and that's what happens. Now, we only think that, the argument goes, because the way we perceive order, we think organization by suits and by numbers is that's what we see. But there are an infinite number of other ways in which you could organize those cards that we can't see. For example, what if you organize the cards by the number of you know, creases in the cards? Then what might look like a random arrangement of cards based on numbers and suits could actually be more ordered than before. Are you following with me here? You don't care about this? <laughs> The, the conclu- so, so what he's saying is, is this. If you could perceive all the different ways that something could be organized, then it's not that we are necessarily increasing in entropy. And, and here's the conclusion. If you had all knowledge and you could look at all these quantum events, if you had omniscience, there would be no time. You know, when I read that, I thought, wow, that is really good, right? If you had omniscience, time would be removed from the equation. Isn't that how we talk about God? Don't we say God knows everything and that God is outside of time? According to at least this theory, omniscience necessitates the removal of time, right? To be omniscient means that there can be no time. That's like, it's like, wow, yes, I get that. Uh, for me, I mean, that's an elegant way, I think, of, of thinking about what eternal life with God, that, that, that quality. Again, I can't really understand it, right? But it's one way of, of imagining, and there's a kind of a science behind this, that there is a way to imagine a quality of life that is eternal without time that there is life, an event, without this element of time. Um, Well, I found that interesting. Um, Regardless of that, um, back to verse 3, God um, is one who will be with us, and, and I think I, I can't emphasize this enough that this is what eternity is the fundamental quality of eternity, of eternal life, is that we are going to be with God. That we're going to be with God. So let me just um, make, um, I think, two implications based on this. Uh, one is that, you know, I think the question that people often have about what's heaven going to be like, you know, am I going to have, you know, a young body? Am I going to have, you know, wings? Can I fly? Um, Will my pet rover be in heaven? Um, I think all those kind of questions are are really secondary, ultimately. Um, It's not the things that are going to be there, right? Um, We ought to conceive of eternity or heaven less as a place than as a person. Than as a person. Uh, One scholar, uh, Eugene Boring, and yes, that's his real name, and yes, he is sometimes boring, uh, says that the end of history is not a war, not an event, 
but a person. The end of history is a person, right? So if, if eternity is all about the presence or the full presence of God with us, then it necessarily means some of these other conditions that this vision has seen, right? There can be no sin. If God is fully there, then there can be no sin. There can be no tears. There can be no darkness. There can be no death because God is fully present. Because where there is God, there can only be life and light and joy in his presence forever. You know, sometimes when uh, this particular text is preached, for example, in the uh, Revised Common Lectionary, they don't include verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, you know, this is the second death. Like, people leave out that verse because it's like, ooh, we, we don't want to talk about that, right? People just end with, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, and that, that's the good stuff. But that has to be there. If God is there, then all this st- bad stuff, it can't be there. Because in the presence of God, in the, in the holiness of God, you cannot have idolaters and liars. You can't. You're mutually exclusive. It's here to tell us that those who oppose God have no place with God. How else could it be? So this list isn't you know, some list to kind of scare you or anything like that so much as it is to encourage those who are, who are suffering and to, to hang in there, to encourage them to be brave, to have faith, to know that they have this hope in God that his promises are sure. And that's why you know, there's going to be no sea. That's an odd verse, right? There's going to be no sea in this new earth. Um, because the sea is a symbol of chaos. It's the, the chaos out of which God created order and goodness. It's the place of, of sea monsters. Um, it, it represents rebellion against God. It's a site in the book of Revelation where Satan and the false prophets and the beasts are situated. You know, the, the things that oppose God will be no more. The sea will be no more. Um, that's the hope that we have. You know, a few weeks ago, uh, in our uh, fellowship group, our FG, we had this discussion about suffering. And, and someone reminded us that, you know, suffering is not God's will for us. It's not. Certainly, God is able to use our suffering, our pains and our hurts. God can have an instrumental use in our lives to, to move us away from you know, spiritual apathy, to teach us a lesson, uh, to give us wisdom, to empathize with others, and so on. We can make good use of the suffering that we have, but in and of itself, it is not a good. So we, we ought never to say to someone who is suffering that that is somehow God's will for them. We, we, God is not a sadist trying to you know, teach you a lesson through suffering. We can learn from that, but God is opposed to our suffering. God is for life. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. I mean, think about that. All you have to do is be thirsty. That's it. I think, I think this is an incredible vision of life, of God gently wiping away every tear from our faces. Uh, as I quoted from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings last week, where everything sad 
will become untrue. God will be with us. Secondly, not only will God be with us, but it also means that we will be with one another. That's what I think the city represents. There will be this ongoing community, communion, a new holy city where God is and where we are together. Um, you know, I, as I said, the, the overall sort of principle has been for me with ministry about um, walking alongside with one another and being together. And the picture of eternity is, is just that. Um, you know, last uh, Friday, this past Friday, um, Yuna um, shared her testimony uh, with us. And, you know, when I was listening to her testimony, um, I could trace her life and my life and the different points where we, we've connected. And I was telling her how, like, she's brought so much pain to my life. <laughs> um, I said that, you know, jokingly, but there have been certain points where, like, you know, she went through a lot of suffering and I suffered with her in, in those moments, you know. I was telling her how, for example, um, you know, I didn't cry when any of my kids were born, um, but I cried when Emily was born because it was such a difficult pregnancy and for her to, like, for, for that child to be born um, just over two pounds, um, you know, when I got the news, you know, I mean, I was in tears, you know, and I was just tracing our lives together and these different points that were connecting. And I thought, you know, I know something of our history. I, I see some ways that we're connected. Um, but it seems to me that the quality of eternal life, when we are together, we're going to see more fully how we were connected and how God was working all things for God's good. And we're going to hear and know one another and our stories and the way that the God has been present in, in, in all of our lives. For me, that, that's, a, that's an aspect of eternal life that, that I look forward to. to, to like, you know, because I think, uh, like, I have a certain level of, like, social anxiety, and so it's not uh, easy for me to, like, you know, be with a lot of people all the time, right? But I, I imagine in heaven that God will remove that from me and that I will, you know... I won't be so socially awkward and I'll be kind of cool and I'll be able to have these conversations and get to really know people in, in such a deeper way and to see the work of God in, in people's lives and, and what, what, a, what a great thing that is and what, what that must be like. And um, I, I can just see how God was intervening in these different moments and, and what it's like to live in the presence of God all the time, to have um, that kind of total satisfaction. And I think that's what the city uh, points to. And notice here that the new city, it comes down from the new heavens. Right? In ancient cosmology, you know, God is in the heavens up there and you know, we're here. But here you see heaven and earth kind of converging. It's going to be one. There's no need to separate because God is going to be with us. There doesn't have to be this separation between heaven and earth because God is going to be there. And where God is, that's heaven. And that's going to be in this new earth, in this new city, or that's what it represents. Um, for me, I think this is a really good counterbalancing word for people who have this sort of idea, who, this popular idea of like, we're going to go to heaven, right? That, um, and of course, you know, there are pictures of this uh, 
Paul in First Thessalonians, for example, talks about, you know, uh, we'll be caught up in the sky, those of us who are alive. So some of us imagine, you know, heaven's going to be, we're going to be raptured and we're going to be up there somewhere in the clouds, you know, with, with wings and clouds and golden harps and, and things like that. Um, but, you know, the, even that passage from First Thessalonians, um, the emphasis isn't so much that we're going to be caught up and raptured. The emphasis, uh, Paul says this, he says, so that we will always be with the Lord. That's, that's the good news. It's not that we're going to fly up, although that would be kind of cool. It's that you will always be with the Lord. And he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. So, so the key isn't this, you know, the mode of transportation and how we get to this heavenly place. It's that we will always be with the Lord. That's eternal life. That's eternal life. So whether we go up or heaven comes down, the message is really the same, right? That it is the work of God. We, we don't build a tower of Babel to, to reach up into heaven to reach God, but it's God who descends to us. God builds a city. God makes it possible. And as God has ever done, he comes to us to be with us so that we will be together. Just as Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you so that where I am, you may be also. That's eternal life. And this is our only hope, that we belong to God. What does everlasting life hold for us? That we will live with and enjoy God forever. Encourage one another with these words. Let's pray together. God, in the beginning, you declared everything very good. And God, in the end, you will make all things new. And so, God, as we now live in between your creation and the new creation, help us to live here and now eternal lives. We have died to sin. We are in Christ. And to know you is to have eternal life. And so help us to begin to experience that eternal life now with you and with one another. Help us to find our satisfaction in you. And in that satisfaction, God, help us to love one another to walk alongside one another so that in the end we shall all dwell together with you now and forever. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.